just trying to figure out how to begin. I want you to imagine that you're a civilian who's about to go on to a submarine. You're only going to go on for a couple of weeks, but you're about to embark as a civilian aboard a military submarine. You're a journalist, or you're there to oversee in some capacity, though you are not to interfere with the command, structure, or operations. You're just going onto a submarine. The submarine, to make you feel safe as one of my listeners in this hypothetical, is run entirely by women. Perhaps that's why you're there. It's nothing but women aboard this crew. I don't want you to think about this little experiment in terms of real-world danger or gamemanship or anything along those lines. I want you to think about <clears throat> yourself on this trip, on the submarine, as the sole passenger who is not a part of an organization. A couple of days before you board, you're told that the captain doesn't like you. It has nothing to do with you personally. They just don't want any civilians on board. They see it as trouble, but they've been given orders by their command. And that command has said to let you on. But you're warned, don't mess with the command structure. It won't mess with you. Stay clear. And this is really the only advice you're given. There's no danger. There's no threat. Just, you're not going to get along well with them. So don't bother. You keep this in mind. You board. You make friends with a couple of the crewmates. You make along, and you go along well enough the first couple of days. The submarine, as part of its routine mission, is going to submerge though, and it is going to cut off all, and I do mean all, communication with the outside world. Now, it's not going to do this for long, but it is going to do it for some period of time, at least a number of days. It's not known exactly how long that's part of the submarine's mission, to go out of contact for an unknowable amount of time to confuse the enemy or anybody else observing, and then to come back. You know, it's less than two weeks. That's about it. The other thing that you notice right before the submarine is about to go on this stealth mission is that there's an illness spreading around the vessel. People are getting sick, but unfortunately the illness it doesn't seem to be making people physically that ill. Unfortunately, the effects of this illness primarily seem to be psychological. So, you start to worry, and you start to take precautions. You are, after all, stuck on a submarine with people getting sick. And you don't want your mentality changing in this already stressful, alien situation. You want to keep your wits about you. You're not a military person. You're just doing it for the next number of days and then going home. 
but the ecosystem around you, it's very finite. And you're starting to hear rumors. Some days into it, you're starting to hear that the captain and the XO, the executive officer, are starting to get into rows. The information is not coming to you reliably, and when it does, it's often coming to you in jargon or by somebody who doesn't want to explain it to a civvy, even if they are quite friendly. You're not one of them. What can you understand? You can have an opinion, but what good would it be to voice it or to give it, even if you could get all the information outsider? Even the most friendly of the crew members seem to say to you. There's a reason why I chose all women for this hypothetical. So, you are among it, and you are in it. And when you feel paranoia, or rage, or frustration, you obviously immediately after wonder if this is a sign of the psychosis that apparently is growing throughout the ship. Then, you hear a very startling rumor. The XO, the second-in-command on the ship, is locked in their quarters, and the submarine typically does not have munitions lying around, or people out in open regalia and weaponry, but there are two armed and uniformed guards outside the XO's cabin. Nobody knows why. Everybody says to avoid the captain at all terms. What more, the information that's coming to you is now erratic. There used to be a flow to the ship, but after some days under the water and some days of this situation, now the information's coming to you every 15, 20 minutes. Sleep schedules are completely broken, and you're wondering if it's fatigue, isolation that's causing the strange behavior in yourself and others. You don't wonder so much about the captain. You don't wonder so much about the XO. You've made your determinations what's going on there, just from how it's all playing out. It is at this point, as a civilian aboard this ship, that you might hope and wonder, what good can it do to have a captain on board and someone that can outrank the captain occasionally if that person is interred in the room? If the captain can just decide, well, the person who can overrule me is overruled. You start to wonder about the command structure aboard this ship, and what value it holds that people must sign up to follow this captain in order for their opinion to have any value. You must be a part of this system, and its ranking, and what it determines in order for the system to value you. Otherwise, civilian, keep quiet. This does not concern you and you start to wonder about how this might be a strange situation, but it is. The situation is, however strange it might be, and you are in it. And what are we going to do about the captain? 
If you're wondering if the captain is Trump, unfortunately, I think he is not in this analogy. That's very comforting because then the XO becomes Joe Biden or whoever you put up against him, Bernie Sanders or anyone else, and you just say, oh, we just get rid of Trump. We get the sane guy in there. <clears throat> but what if as the journalist you come to a conclusion that the captain is the system? That the captain is literally the Navy or the military or the armed forces or the government itself. That the captain and the captain's rules are the natural consequence of any time that this happens or anything like it. What if this is how it's always going to play out? Anytime you get remotely like this circumstance, what if you are now looking at this circumstance with your civilian eyes and you come to the inescapable conclusion? Anytime the captain really decides how it's going to be, that's how it's going to be. And there's no one and nothing to reprimand them except time. An unknowable amount of time that they have some degree of control over extending. And then you have to wonder, what if all those thoughts are just psychosis? Because, I mean, you are trapped aboard the ship. So, I wrote two beginnings to this episode and threw them away entirely. That was the least dark of anything I tried to write, analogy-wise, for where I'm at, what I feel, and what I'm trying to get across to you guys, just as a guy who jerks off into a microphone. And irreliably at that, because at this point, there's no podcast for the week up yet. But then I also think about everybody I've ever read that I ever thought had a point, and they were always the civilian on the submarine. They were always the outsider. In fact, fairly recently, there was a pretty great movie that nobody saw because of the subject matter called Spotlight. And in Spotlight, one of the characters comes out and says, do you know why outsiders uncovered this conspiracy? Because we're outsiders, and we could actually see it. You couldn't, you locals. Now, he says it a bit better than that, but it really stuck with me because I believe that there's an inherent amount of truth to it, and I have all my life. Different perspectives, well, they help. Communication, community, all that stuff, well, it really does matter. <laughs> At least I kind of thought it did. But now we're living in an age of the ability to have a monolith of confusion. Where you're capable of saying your facts because of this never-ending torrent of information. Your facts are only equal to my opinions of your facts. And the facts are shifting and the news is coming so quickly that you can't see where it's going.
This is a long, rambly way of trying to state that I think that there's a lot of confusion and a lot of bad actors, and everybody's getting their voice across as best as they can about what's going on and where they're at. So here's where I'm at. I am super depressed, and it's not for any particular reason or trigger. In fact, most days, I'm legitimately both depressed and grateful. I asked for it, and I got it, and it stinks. <laughs> I'm legitimately grateful for what I have and my opportunities going forward and all the rest compared to so many other people. I mean that. And I know I mean that because it's what keeps me going because I'm also so depressed. For the, for the first time really in my life, I feel like my side lost. But much more importantly than that, for the first time in my life, I feel like my side can never win. And I'm just going to kind of walk you through it at the beginning, and then we're going to read a shit ton of stuff to make up for it. So here we go. Among my past lives, political advocacy for the Democratic Party is pretty high amongst them. I have volunteered. I have given money. I have phone banked. I have supported the machine itself, the candidates themselves. I, in some small way, helped make New Mexico blue with time and effort and shoulder to shoulder with so many others, but in a small way. I've talked about building temples before, temples of 10 million bricks. Well, in a temple of 10 million bricks, if you're a bricklayer, you laid some of them, even if it's just one. That's how you make a temple. So in my small way, I really felt like I gave what I could to the fight, and then some. And now I just feel like such a sucker. Because in the submarine analogy, it's so easy to make the captain a person. Or a group of people. Because then if they're gone, then everything's great! Here's the thing. If you want to replace the captain in that analogy with Trump, somebody else wants to replace it with black people. Man, if we could just get rid of these black people, this submarine would be perfect. They're the ones fucking it up. You know who it is? It's the Jews. You know who it is? You know who's really fucking up this submarine? It's just so easy to make it a person or a group or an other or somebody that you already dislike or distrust. It's so easy to fill it in with someone else, an other, whoever an other is to you. Because then you throw them out, and the submarine works perfect. But what if the captain is not a person and will never be a person and can never be identified as a person? What if the captain is the system? What if the captain is just logically saying, when nobody else is above me, I am supreme. And I will be supremely listened to. My ideas. 
I, Island Fever, this, now, me. My time. I have come to the conclusion, unfortunately, along with many left-wing activists, that no meaningful change is going to be made. And so, to lay that down on you in a way that's not too heavy, I've wanted to say this for months, but I didn't feel comfortable because so many people are so concerned and miserable right now about the state of the world. And the idea of Donald Trump going away in any capacity is relief to them. He is such an antagonist to so many people, and even if he's not, he's such a gadfly and so annoying and so prevalent, and people just want their discussions and their internet and their TV and their news to go back to normal, that I really know how much of a curmudgeon and how much of an asshole I'm being. And that's why I waited, out of respect for a couple of months, to get to the point where Donald Trump is clearly not going to fucking win re-election, and if he does, he clearly cheated, and that's its own goddamn thing. So I waited until now to make this point. And if you, if you have to live with a world where Donald Trump leaves office and then things get better, this is where you jump off. Because I wrote down a worst-case scenario for 2020, pretty close to the beginning of it. By God, we've been falling right down that mousetrap. Not everything, but by God, have we hit a lot of the bullet points. Just the worst, the worst possible outcomes for America, and we're real close. I won't say what we haven't hit. But we've hit a lot of the ones that I was really afraid of. Not quashing it, doing economic, you know, quarter measures, all of it. Really all of it. So as somebody who's just been watching these machinations, these bumper cars, just fucking hit all year long. And has restrained himself, in, in public spaces at least, or tried to. Here it is. Here's the next two years above the submarine. Now that the captain's in the brig, and the XO's out. Here's why I feel horribly and personally betrayed to the point where I legitimately ask myself how I can make a difference, if I can make a difference, what good it would do to make a difference, those very depressed existential questions. Here we go. Joe Biden wins, and he wins big. He probably even wins bigger than by Barry's amount. And everybody is very, very happy. There's a weird, weird two and a half long uh, month period of transition, but January 20th comes around, Biden gets inogged. It's weird, it's touch and go, there's a lot of headlines, but uh, it happens. Biden wins big. And there is actually a Democratic Senate majority. Not a supermajority like Barry had, but a pretty good one. That is January 20th, 2021. At this point, around 325,000 
recorded American deaths uh, of COVID have occurred. If you go with excessive deaths, we're looking at more like 425. Deaths above and beyond the year before. The world economy ain't doing so great, because it's not now, but it's doing even worse, because all of the information that we've got from various economies has slowed down. And there's an uptick of cases. Hope everybody's having a great show, by the way. Hope you're all having a good time. Tip your waitress. Hope everybody's had just some big smiles all around. And so there's all kinds from where we're sitting right now to believe that there's going to be economic pain and contraction going forward. By and large, the economic view across the world is, you know how many jobs a country had in 2019? It might have that many jobs again by the end of 2022 or 2023 or 2024 or 2025, somewhere in there, is what they're saying. So Joe Biden is about, if you, if you think, if you're old enough to remember what Republicans did against Barack Obama, the obscenation and, and the bad economy, all indicators are that Biden's about to inherit a worse economy, much worse for much longer than Barry. He's going to pick up the Supreme Court nomination fight from where it's sitting. He's going to pick up the culture war fight from where it's sitting. And then he's going to begin his very awesome reign from someone who's followed his campaign for the last two years. He has been remarkably consistent for a politician. He's going to begin his awesome reign of, no, we can't. No, we can't. Can we get health care for people? No, we can't. We can't afford that. Jobs training program, can we do that? Well, we can say we can pass a jobs training program, but no, we can't, actually. Prison reform. Do you trust Kamala Harris to do prison reform? No, we can't. No, we fucking can't. And if I see one more person try and get on me for being anti-Harris because she's a brown girl or a black girl or whatever she's identifying this fucking week as, instead of a fucking cop, because that's what she identified as for 25 fucking years, then I'm going to lose my shit. <laughs> Oh, she suddenly, oh, she suddenly said what she had a big audience, she's in favor of criminalizing. I'm sure we all believe that. Joe Biden said throughout all of 2019, if you elect me your nominee, there's a good chance I'll get a Republican as the vice president. I might appoint a Republican to the Supreme Court. I 100% believe that the Republicans in the Senate have the best faith in America. The best faith. And Joe Biden believes all of this. And here's the thing. The majority of Democrats, the voters, seem to agree with him. And this is where I am 
the civilian aboard the military ship now. I was a military man, but something happened aboard this particular journey, and I'm a civilian now. My patches are off. And I'm seeing the way that the regular working order goes in a very, very different and sinister way now that I'm watching the captain get more deranged with every passing cycle, shall we say. So to go back to the analogy of the civilian on the submarine that I want you to be, that I want you to see, that I want you to make yourself to be, let's just say we get the captain and the XO out and we put a third in command in. This ship that's already filled with psychosis. How are you going to trust them? How do you determine if you're going to break the chain of command who's not psychotic? You're aboard the ship. It is at this point that I should tell you that there is a medical rule that is not universal across armed forces or militaries or situations, and that is the captain is not always in charge, and that is to say the highest-ranking officer is not always in charge. Sometimes the commander or the commander-in-chief isn't. And we actually just went through a bout of this in America as well. What typically happens when a president goes under is the 25th Amendment is a vote, and they stopped magically having the ability to be the commander-in-chief, and somebody else magically gets it. It's all very regal. It just reminds me of kingship and royal families, like, oh, you're a king? You're a king? You're a king? You're hot? Stop! That's the king now! Did you see it jump? Did you see it jump? Did everybody see it? It's real quick. You can't blink. Did you see it? He died. He was in the room. We saw it jump from one to the other, one to the other. The king, the king. Did you see it? You didn't see it? I saw it, I believe. I believe. I believe. He doesn't believe. He didn't see it. He doesn't believe. He doesn't believe. Listen, if God didn't want magical penises to rule over us, he wouldn't have told us that he did in a book that we can't read that someone else reads to us every Sunday. And this is not at all different than the Navy metaphor aboard the submarine. Don't think about it too closely. In all seriousness, the POTUS has to go down. Or when somebody goes down, then, of course, they, they give their authority over. If it's temporary, then it's a temporary shift. And this is what can happen in the armed forces. This is what can happen when a medical officer says to the commander, you're sick. I'm assuming command. Now, medical officers in this situation don't assume command and then sit in the chair and start barking out orders. They decide who's not sick. Or they decide, we're going to break protocol, and we're going to contact your boss, Mr. Sicky Boy. Or, or, or. Again, many armed forces across the world, there's not one system. But we don't have a doctor on this sub. Or if we do, we're in a military where that doesn't happen. We're in a military system where the commander says, I am the Democratic Party, or I am the Republican Party. Because those are two quotes from the two men 
who are asking to run America. So maybe it's not the captain of the XO. Maybe it's the system. Maybe it's this knowledge that there's a line of secession and rank, and if you fulfill it and you get through it, then you get the certain privileges, and you get to do certain things, and that's just the way it is, and everybody else with the rank and the uniform goes along with it, because next up they get to be promoted. Maybe that's a part of the problem. Maybe the, the system being so fucking precise is part of why there's island fever. So now back away from the submarine and to the electoral process. Gerrymandering is bad, say the Democrats. I agree, I fight against it. Gerrymandering is bad. What's gerrymandering? It's the cutest term in the world for destroying democracy. You basically perform a Jackson Pollock on the counties and the populations of a U.S. state, and you get it so that you can really fringe it to one degree or the other. One party gets all the power with much less votes, and then from that state legislature power, they get to start making national consequences, and therefore, no matter what, you're saying, I'm talking a lot about America in this submarine, I know, because fortunately, some school mom in Oklahoma who's decided that evolutionary books should not be part of her school curriculum and is capable of reaching out to Texas, is capable of affecting 80 million Americans and what they read over the next decade. And that's going to have a pretty big effect over your country and where you live, given how much America declares war, given how much America declares economic sanctions and new policy, given how much of climate change and environmental policy in your neighborhood is actually determined by us. It's actually really important to you. And I promise I'm about to get to the end of this. So thank you very much for sticking around this long. We're off the submarine now, and we're thinking about the submarine as our electoral process. And we're thinking about the captain as the Constitution. And I know that that's hard if you're an American, because the Constitution is literally presented to you in the exact same way that God is in Christianity. It's the beginning, and everything is possible because of this. And it's only because this thing came around and loved you and is so good that any good thing in your life has ever happened. So you have to love this captain, constitution, government, America. You have to love it. And also, we're natural and right. And this is just natural and good laws that are innate that we just further. Now pledge allegiance. It is presented, the constitution, as though Nothing could exist outside of it. It is the Alpha and the Omega. But the first thing you learn if you learn about constitutions, plural, is one, there's a lot of them, and two, 
when you start asking questions about the way that other people do them, especially if you start comparing them to us, you find out kind of this strange thing. Most countries with constitutions that are still going around aren't on their first one. In fact, after you start probing around in it, you start figuring out Thomas Jefferson. You may have heard of that character from the great uh, series of uh, song and dance routines called Hamilton. Thomas Jeffy actually thought that every generation, every few decades, would need a new one. One more time. The author of this document that we're supposed to enshrine in his wisdom thought that the document should be temporary and should have expired at least 200 years ago. One last time, the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution that is the center of all American government that we are supposed to respect thought that the Constitution should not be that thing. This is intentional silence. I need you to think of the captain as temporary. Because you don't do it, and that really bothers me. It bothers me that the captain and the ship are one in your mind, and that the captain goes down with the ship. But you got to stop, and here's why. Now I want you to think of the captain as the U.S. Constitution that's put us here, for whatever reason that you don't understand, that you've been told to stay out of the way of, and that you know it's going to go about its business and mission without you, with or without you. Just think about it in real political terms. Ready? Gerrymandering, gerrymandering. How does it stop? Politically, actively, what is the answer from the Democratic Party? If the Democratic Party says over and over and over and over and over again, we can't have normal politics until the Republican Party stops doing gerrymandering, which they do, what is the answer to stop it? What is their answer? What is your answer? Why hasn't you heard it? Why isn't this a campaign issue? Voting rights. Why are we registering people to vote? Why are we holding elections on the first Tuesday of November? Why any of it? Because a bunch of farmers from the 1700s decided that that's the way it should be. But if we keep allowing state legislatures to determine who can and cannot vote, how are you expecting change? Next up, if you don't believe things can change in our system, why are you against people who don't vote? And what is the answer for this? Because Republicans love it when people don't vote, and the Democratic Party's answer to this is we just need people to vote for Democrats. Excuse me, there's a very simple answer, says the Democratic Party, to this problem. More people just need to vote for us.
Next question. Do you like the ability to elect senators? Because the Founding Fathers hated it. The Founding Fathers did not want you to elect senators. Governors should appoint them. Governors are smart. You're stupid. The Founding Fathers hated the idea of you electing senators. We had to write that into the Constitution with an amendment over 150 years later. I want you to think of your governor, and I want you to think of the worst governor. I want you to think about the worst regional boss you've ever had in your life. And now they get to determine and appoint for whatever reason, at whatever whim, any time that they have whatever crony or outfit or person that they want into the position of United States Senator. Forever. Like a Supreme Court Justice. Think about all the feelings you have about the Supreme Court justice fight every time a senator in your state dies, every time an important senator in any state dies, because that's the system the Founding Fathers wanted. Do you like the ability to vote for a senator? If the captain of the ship says, we gave you the ability to vote for senators, but we're going to take that back. That was a privilege. Obviously not a right. Now it's gone. You lost it. How do you tell the captain no? That last one's a trick question. You're never going to tell the captain no. <laughs> I've, this is what 2020 has taught me. The captain will do whatever the captain wants and will say whatever it's going to say, and you're just going to go along with it. Doesn't matter how crazy. You're just going to talk about it more and more. How crazy it is, the exosuit. Isn't it crazy? Oh, now he's got flamethrowers outside the ex. Oh, I can't wait until we throw this captain out. So I've learned. I've learned that I have to really try from my outsider's perspective to bring you where we're at. And I'm sorry that I have to do it with analogy. And I'm sorry that I have to put in real things with it as well. But I said it last week, and I don't know if it connected. And as a man who has fought on the front line for reproductive rights, who's really put some muscle into this one, I say it again. How is your daughter or your granddaughter ever going to have political effect on the system if you're asking her to Always defend her ovaries every single election cycle. Really? What's your way out? I'm not asking you hypothetically. What's your way out since you've watched in America and across the world in some places re reproductive rights fall by the wayside, absolutely get destroyed and abandoned, and we are now further behind in this country? than we were 20 years ago on this issue, and we're not the only one. So I ask you sincerely, as a woman, as a woman, what's your political answer? If one political party is saying to you, or a political party that's viable is saying to you, you have to vote for us or you lose this right, how is your daughter, your granddaughter in that system, ever going to move the fulcrum?
ever. If there's always a gun to her ovaries, how is she ever going to say, okay, but this is important to me too? I want you to really imagine that we get to a point. I don't think that this is possible. But just because democracy is about options and about how you can further yourself and further society at its core, it's not so long ago that women were not allowed to run in marathons or have their own bank accounts. That's really not so long ago at all. If we get to a point where the democratic platform is vote for us, we'll give women back their bank accounts. Do you hear what I'm fucking saying? Because that's very much, as a man, what vote for Joe Biden in 2020, he won't take your ovaries away, sounds like to me. Very much what it feels like. Until you get to a system, until you get to an understanding where women don't have to defend in the voting booth their personhood, humanity, and rights, how are they going to further their ideas? Black women in America are the most educated cohort, the most educated demographic in America, is black women. How much do they get to move the fulcrum in our society? Collectively. To this, to this day, it's still called black girl magic when a black woman is successful in something. <laughs> it, it's like clockwork. It's amazing. <laughs> really? One more time, because feel free to look it up. This one slaps people across the face. Black women are the most educated demographic in America. And how much outsize do they get? What influence do they get to push upon us? It'd be nice to say it's all money. And I mean a huge part of it's money because of Citizens United. But legitimately and truly, how much of it is just because forces at work just stop them? Just inherently, a system that only has to run on its own regulation has to listen to. I have no illusions or delusions that I can affect the U.S. Constitution from this podcast or from this speech. I have no illusions or delusions that if I, if I made myself into the most charismatic speaker and I went across the country that I could really change things. None. This is part of my depression. I don't believe I can change things. I'm an outsider on the goddamn ship. All of my life, all anyone has ever told me is how strange I am. 
usually nicely these days, but it's still the first words out of somebody's mouth when they meet me is, boy, you're doing your own thing. Boy, you're unique. Boy, you've got your own thing going on, huh? I do. <laughs> all my life, friend. All my life. And it has made 2020 the strangest education. Because I truly thought, naively, for a number of months, people are going to come together. They were going to look at the problem. They were going to say the problem was too big. And they were going to fight it. And parts of that happened. But the medical officer never showed up. And I've got a whole rant on the medical officer and who they're supposed to be in this story and all that. I threw it away because it's too depressing. But the cop, the medical cop, the doc, they never showed up. The person that the captain has to listen to never came. And so now I've been stuck for six, seven months watching that play out in real time. And this is where I am. So I will speak my piece plainly, and then I'll move on to the fun. I no longer believe, especially with the exacerbation of Citizens United, that any real good change can come in America. And in fact, America will just continue to become more corrupt. Americans don't want to use this word, but that's what's been happening the entire 21st century. A corruption of America. A corruption of every single aspect of it. It's voting. It's industry. It's money and monetary policy. Stagnation of society. All of it. And when corruption enters into a society, it is so much more difficult to get out than the flow coming in. What more, the worst part about this for me, really having cogitated over all of it, is just how blind people are to how bad and how quickly it's gotten. How bad and how quickly. People seem to legitimately believe that gay rights were expanded because of politics in this country. That Congress or the president had something to do with it instead of a Supreme Court that just ruled on it one day. And so I ask people who think that I'm going too far being too hyperbolic, if you know about American politics, what do you think is good? In the 21st century of American politics, what is... What has come out of America politically through Congress? Because that's our system. That's our captain. In the last 20 years that you approve of, if it's the AMA, I respect you, but I disagree. And that's about it if you're leftist. That's about it if you're anybody. Exactly, I don't know what a Republican's going to say that they're super excited about in the last 20 years legislatively. They hate legislation. So... <laughs> they, they hate government and politics. But as somebody who fought really hard for gay marriage and is like super like kind of up on himself because he just listened to a, a young gay kid uh, 
talk about how he was sent to a bad organization and how if his parents really loved him, they would have joined PFLAG instead, which was the organization I was a fucking member of. I teared up. Somebody's riding that high fairly recently. It just crushes me that President Barry, <laughs> marriage is defined between a man and a woman, Obama, <laughs> gets credit for this going forward when he absolutely put his heel down on it and tried to stop it and was absolutely a negative force. Hearing Democrats say, well, what he really meant was like their goddamn trumpets, like their goddamn red hats telling you what Trump really means when he says something blows my mind and hurts my heart every single time. It's just a fake remembering because you want your team to be better than it is. And it just hurts. I'm so glad that we got gay marriage. You know what would be so much fucking better than gay marriage? Do you, do you know why gay marriage pisses me the fuck off? Because you can still get fired in 30-some states for being gay! Oh, it's so great that the Supreme Court came down and passed something. Agreed, it's better than nothing. You know what's better? An actual federal bill of fucking rights that would allow gay people to adopt, to have jobs, to have benefits, to give the benefits to their family, non-married, spousal, non-spousal family. That's something that you could cheer Barack Obama on. That is equality. That's justice. That's opportunity. That's all of it. We didn't get any of it. When Muslims were the most hated group in this country for a decade and the FBI and Homeland Security was infiltrating them, where was the Democratic voice screaming? Stop. Because they are all now. Every Democrat so happy to say now that it was really bad that we did all that. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But Muslims were the tip of the spear. They were the most hated out group in this country. And you could justify anything between, just about anything in this country, between about 2002 and 2011 in this country, just by saying that it would hurt Muslims. Not by using those words, of course, but just by saying this will restrict Islamicists. You would get 51% of the support. You would not get a political opponent. You would not get primaried. Lastly on this whole, you have to tell me if you really want me to be a part of this system and say that this system's working instead of me saying you have to start thinking about this system as inherently falling apart. Inherently corrupt and further corrupting itself. Because that's all I see. I'm going to give you one last example. It's about Republicans this time. Thank Christ, yes. Because a lot of you, a lot of people wonder once you start talking about like the, the, the flaws you see in your side of the aisle, and you talk about that long enough, people go, oh, I bet he's actually just switched. He's a secret agent. He only says all these things about people, but he's really a Republican. So I will end this, and then we'll get to the fun part, I promise, finally. Uh, we're going to just real quickly, just as an example, talk about Paul Ryan. And Paul Ryan's corruption, 
For those of you who don't know, Paul Ryan was a national figure in politics in America. He left Washington sometime in the last couple of years. Uh, didn't run for re-election on his way out. Kind of a media darling. A lot of people who are not on the same side as Paul Ryan. A lot of people on the same side as Paul Ryan talk about how intelligent he is and how attractive he is, how smart he is. A lot of people on the other side of the aisle talk about how uh, that's all just, you know, showmanship and they don't really believe it. Uh, it's all a bunch of nonsense. That's that's just so you have a basic image in your mind of, of Paul Ryan, just a generic suit. Okay. Paul Ryan was in a very powerful position, and after he left Washington, Paul Ryan used his position and his, his connections in Washington to make himself rich. In fact, Paul Ryan went to Washington a not-rich man at all, but after writing books and after doing uh, you know, a lot of speaking and being on magazine covers and whatnot, he left with some millions. Some millions. But Paul Ryan is worth a lot of money now, right? He went to Washington with not much money. He left with some millions, but much more importantly, he left with all kinds of connections. And now he's worth a lot. It's hard to say exactly how much he's worth, but he's worth at least $200 million at this point. And there's a very good chance that he'll be worth multiple billions by the time that he dies, his estate. One reason for this is, of course, Paul Ryan's wife, which, of course, nobody would know except for the fact that she's Paul Ryan's wife. Paul Ryan's wife uh, has now gotten a little bit of a media empire going. In fact, though nobody would know who she was, Paul Ryan's wife is now being promoted all across uh, various uh, channels and platforms on social media and now has a show that's actually quite popular. Political opponents from the other side say that this is actually like really disgusting and that a former political national figure should not be using their power like this, that a former political couple that's so connected that this is bad. But of course, political people on the exact same side downplay this and talk about how it's just naturally what people want. So once again, this is the story of... <laughs> this is the story of Ryan and how he came to Washington without much money. He left Washington with millions and millions upon dollars. He got his wife a sweetheart communications deal, and now he's raking it in at least 75 to $100 million a year. Do you think that's bad? Do you think that that's a good thing that Paul Ryan can do that? Or do you think that that's a bad thing? Do you think that it's an okay thing that Paul Ryan can come into Washington and do this? Okay, because it's a lie. Everything I just said about Paul Ryan was a lie. Not a word of it's true. However, every single word of it's true about Barack and Michelle Obama, who now spend $5,000 to $10,000 nights on hotel rooms and wear twenty dollars to $30,000 dresses and suits, and are now worth between 250 and 400 million dollars. Ah, but Michelle Obama having a podcast on Spotify that's promoted is a good thing if you're not a Republican. And the system is working. Right, Captain?
Let's read some fucking poetry. <clears throat> I know I just pissed off somebody horribly by saying, how dare you compare Michelle Obama to Paul Ryan's wife? But all I can say to you is, I mean every fucking word of it. I have no respect for the Obamas whatsoever anymore. I don't know a single good person who, with the poverty in America, would spend $10,000 a night on a hotel room. Not one. Not one. Not one decent person. Much less if they're profiting off the people. I, uh, I left a little thing out of that rant because I'm very emotional. Because I voted for Obama and I campaigned for Obama and I really thought that Obama was going to help Americans. I really did. So I'm very emotional about it. The last thing that really bothers me about the Obamas is that a lot of political figures in a lot of countries, you know, they buy their houses in a big city. They buy an apartment. They buy something. They set something up. And, and, and it's a declaration. Bill Clinton got an office in uh, Brooklyn, for instance. This was the biggest news ever. Bill Clinton got an office in black, black Brooklyn. <gasps> That's the way the media played it. It was this big deal, and it was a big story. And I mean, it, it deserves where the presidential library goes, what's in it, what it looks like, what a president does with their legacy while they're still alive. I agree. These are news stories. It should really bother the shit out of everybody voting Democrat that Barack and Michelle Obama taking their show on the road to Netflix and Spotify, making hundreds of millions of dollars a year, bought a mansion, a $16 million mansion in Martha's Vineyard. That should really bother every last one of us. And it pisses me off that I have to make such an elongated political argument to get around to it so that people hear it the way that they should. Because if you just come out and say, Barack Obama bought a nice house or his wife's doing real well on a podcast, now they've got a lot of money, the people who say that he's not the enemy say, great! That's why the captain's not a person. That's why it's not about Barack Obama or Donald Trump or the next guy. And that's why the questions were going forward. What are we going to do? What are we going to do if I'm right? And it's not the people or the persons, but the system. And the system's going to keep doing this. Just, I promise I'm going to get off it. This is the end of my rage and I'm pushing it down. But do remember what I said going forward about Joe Biden up until 2022 and the economy that he inherited, the no, we can't period, and all the rest. Just time feels very strange right now, but this is going to be recorded. Maybe go back and listen to the Bezian episode, whatever one that's called, before you ever heard about COVID, probably. And listen to the jokes I made about things being shipped to your door. And what that world was going to look like comedically. And just as I try and summon all the good parts of me while I'm so fucking depressed and low. Every part of my mind 
looks forward to the next two years and sees the exact same day in, day out as 2020 has been. And I'm just trying so hard to relate that to the five of you that it might help. Because what else am I supposed to do? <sighs> okay. <clears throat> the modern biographers worry how far it went, their tender friendship. They wonder just what it means when he writes he thinks of her constantly, his guardian angel, beloved friend. The modern biographers ask the rude, irrelevant question of our age as if the event of two bodies mashing together establishes the degree of love. Forgetting how softly Eros walked in the 19th century, how a hand held long over long, or a gaze anchored in someone's eyes could unseat a heart. The nuance of address not known in our egalitarian language could make the redolent air tremble shimmer with the heat of possibility. Each time I hear the intermezzi, sad and lavish in their tenderness, I imagine the two of them sitting in a garden along late-blooming roses and dark cascades of leaves, letting the landscape speak for them, leaving us nothing to overhear. Romantics, Lysel Mueller. <laughs> Primeval, my love for the woman I love, O bride, O wife, more restlessness, more enduring than I can tell the thought of you, then separate as disembodied the purest born, the ethereal, the last athletic reality, my consolation, I ascend. I float in the regions of your love, O oh man, O oh share of my roving life. Primeval, my love, for the woman I love, by Walt Whitman. The muscle between my legs is good for fertilizing your eggs, but it will never make or break our love affair. Although it gives you great pleasure, and these moments I do treasure, it will never be the main way to show I care. Thus revealing the fact that sex is just an act and love is never anything that one should fall into. I may sound like a fool when I say my mind is the tool that I'll use to make love to you. It may be big, firm, thick, and strong, and it may even last long, but never as long as the images it leaves me in your thoughts. I feel your sister when you say all the other misters never took you there, but it ain't my fault. I love to touch, I love to feel, be first and foremost. I love to keep it real, you know this to be true. Although our physical acts will bring the ultimate climax, my mind is the tool that I'll use to make love to you. My Mind is the Tool by Intimate Knight. Intimate K-N-I-G-H-T. Hmm. I was actually just talking about this. 
Nobody steps into the same river twice. The same river is never the same because that is the nature of water. Similarly, your changing metabolism means that you are no longer you. The cells die, and a precise configuration of the heavenly bodies when she told you that she loved you will not come again in this lifetime. You will tell me that you have executed a monument more lasting than bronze. But even bronze is perishable. Your best poem, you know the one I mean, the very language in which the poem was written, the idea of language, all these things will pass away in time. Hmm, I don't know this name. Heraclitus on Rivers by Derek Mahon. M-A-H-O-N. Mahon. Mahon. Mahone, right? Because of police academy? Mahone! Come near me with thy lips and breath over mine. Their breath, for I consume with love's desire, thine ivory arms about me clasp and twine, and beam upon my eyes, thine eyes saw fire. Clasp me yet closer till my heart feels thine, thrill as the chords of Memon's mystic lyre, thrilled at the sun's uprising, thou who art the lone, the worshipped idol of my heart. There, Balmier than the south wind when it brings the scent of aromatic shrub and tree, and tropic flower of ifs glowing wings, thine odorous breath is wafted over me. How to thy dewy lips mine own lip clings, and my own being is absorbed in thee, and in my breast thine eyes have lit a fire that never, never, never shall expire. Eternal, it is not eternal, this our passionate love, what power shall part us twain, not even death, life could bestow no bliss like death with thee, and I would rend its chain if thou shouldst perish, for my heaven is to gaze upon thee. I could bear all pain unsighing not to be parted from thy side, my beautiful, my spirits chosen bride. Then try to woo me from my fond embrace, to lure me from the light of those dear eyes, to tell me that in fortune's arduous chase I have such fleetness as I would win the prize, but all the pomps of circumstance and place, a glance, a word, a smile of thine outvise, lose fortune to a parasite's. Mine be the blessed lot to dwell with love and thee, to lead thee on through life, and to enlarge thy soul with the added knowledge day by day, to godly is the angel's God his charge from every ill that looks along the way, to smooth that rugged way, to strew its marge with its bright flowers that never can decay. This were a lot to glorious to divine, and yet hope whispers that it shall be mine. Now listen, love. This plan 
shall rule my life, and thine, in some remote and sunny dell, far from the crowded city's silly strife, my hand shall rear the home where we well dwell. Shall till the soil with fertile fruitage rife, and teach the golden ear to shoe to swell, and my sole wish for recompense shall be my ever-growing deepening love for thee. To task shall be to train the training vine, to watch and cherish in its growth the flower whose breath and cheek are sweet and fair as thine, to bless and brighten the domestic bower, and we will build a love and hallowed shrine to bow us in his worship on every hour. Till, chastened by his smile, my heart has grown as pure and soft and sinless as thy own. O oh, hasten, love, to realize this dream, come from the world, this crowd is not far from thee, forsake it then, ere the contagious stream of its foul breath has soiled thy purity. Come, from the heart would burst could I but deem that such as they are thou couldst ever be. Come, for my soul adores thee with a love as burning as the seraphs feel above. To Isabel by George W. Sands I think Sands liked her. I don't know if she knew this, but I think he had, he had a thing for her. It can be hard to tell. How can you tell if a man's interested in you? Wouldn't it be great if you all wrote that in just one night, just to fuck her? And just move on to the next town. That's what you call a Longfellow. Start in close. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in. The step you don't want to take. Start with the ground you know, the pale ground beneath your feet, your own way of starting the conversation. Start with your own question. Give up on other people's questions. Don't let them smother something simple. To find another's voice, follow your own voice. Wait until that voice becomes the private ear listening to another. Start right now. Take another step, and you can call your own. Don't follow someone else's heroics. Be humble and focused. Start close in. Don't mistake that other for your own. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in. The step you don't want to take. Start close in. David White. W-H-Y-T-E. Boy, I need to follow that advice. I need to get busy. <clears throat> One waiting a fall meadow finds on all sides the Queen Anne's lace lying like lilies on water. It glides. So from the walker it turns dry glass to the lake at the slightest shade of view, valleys my mind in fabulous blue lucerne. 
The beautiful changes as a forest is changes. My chameleon's tuning its skin to fit it as a mantis arranged on a green leaf grows into it makes the leaf leafier and proves any greenness is deeper than anyone knows. Your hand holds roses always in a way that says they are not only yours. The beautiful changes in such kind ways, wishing ever to sunder things and things, selves for a second finding to lose for a moment all that it touches back to wonder. Hmm. The Beautiful Changes, Richard Wilbur. I can't get over that line. As a mantis arranged on a leaf grows into it, makes the leaf leafier. That's fantastic. As a mantis arranged on a green leaf grows into it, makes the leaf leafier. That's beautiful. It does. It does. I've never seen a mantis grow into a leaf, but I'm thinking about this very tiny frog that I saw growing on a very green leaf. It's immediate. I haven't thought of it forever. And there it is, immediately. And the contrast of that green frog did, in fact, make the leaf leaf here. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> As a boy, I bicycled the block with a brown mop top falling into a tall, bleached blonde, gold-like under the gold light, like the colors of noble knights banging on corners, corners, Uncensored with the colors I bore, a shorty too small to war with, too brown to be down for the block. White knights became brown kings, still showing black and gold on corners now crowned, the block with a branch branded, with La Corona graffitied on garage doors by the pawns. As a teen, I could have beamed the crown, walked in without the beat-down customs, warred with my cousins who claimed two six on the set of the next block, decked in black and beige. But I preferred games to gangs, books to crooks wearing hats, crook to the left or right, fighting for a plot, a block to spot with mark and blood. Of boys who knew no better ways to grow up than to throw the crown and be down. For whatever. Evolution of My Block by Jacob Sames. S A E N Z. Crown like. Happiest in your hands, feet to the stars and moon scold, gilded like a fish, a common sense, thumbs down on the dodo's mode. Wrapped up in yourself like a spool, trawling your dark as owls duel, mute as a turnip from the fourth of July to all fool's day. Oh, high riser, my little loaf. Vague as fog and looked like the mail, further off than Australia. Bet back outless, oh, our traveled prawn, snug as a bud and at home like a spat in a pickle jar. A creel of eels, all ripples jumpy as a Mexican bean, right like a well-done sum. A clean slate with your own face on. 
Sylvia Plath, yours. And I'll just, please, if you're the person who suggested that or if you enjoyed that, I'm all for it. Please don't take this as a note. This is just the author's note. I will never understand her. Her and Shel Silverstone and people's love of them, and they have such love for these two, and they have such similarities, I think, and they both kind of do the same kind of thing with their fucking poems, which is just all like, You! You're you! And you're so you! And you, 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 you! Here's a thing, and you're you! You're you, and there's this thing! This thing, and you're you! You, 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 thing, you! You're still great! This thing, and you! And, like... <laughs> I just don't... I mean, I just don't get it. Like, I'm not a poet. Like, I've talked before about how I read through Ode to a Grecian Vase three different times and was like, this is just about a vase. This can't be a good poem because this is just about a vase. Teacher, teacher, you've given us a bad poem to study. This poem is clearly just what this poem says it's about. Anybody can do that. Here, watch me. Here is a poem. Ode to a Grecian Earn. It is about that. See? See how fucking easy that is? When it's just... <laughs> wow, I actually just ad-libbed that, and that was fucking fantastic. Thank you, 575, for being so fucking easy. No wonder they gave it to us as kids. Ah, uh, I really thought I was going to need to know more 575s, how Oxbow Lakes were formed multiplication tables. I really thought I was going to need to know this shit, the way that they talked to us as kids. Remember microfiche? Boy, they really pretended like that stuff was going to be fucking valuable for years and years and years. Fucking microfiche. <sighs> When's the last time you're like, oh, man, I need more information. Quick, better find a neon green and black slide and a shitty fucking machine to put it in. <sighs> the end of the affair is always death. She's my workshop, slippery eye, out of the tribe of myself of breath, finds you gone. I horrify those who stand by. I am fed at night, alone. I marry the bed. Finger to finger, now she's mine. She's not too far. She's my encounter. I beat her like a bell. I recline in the bower where I used to mount her and borrowed me on the flowered spread. At night, alone, I marry the bed. Take, for instance, this night, my love, that every single couple puts together with a joint overturning beneath and above, the abundant two of the sponge and feather kneeling and pushing head to head, at night, alone, I marry the bed. I break out of my body this way, an annoying miracle. Could I put the dream market on display? I spread out. I crucify. My little plum is what you said. At night, alone, I marry my bed. Then my black-eyed rival came, the lady of water rising on the beach, the piano at her fingertips, shame on her lips like a flute speech, and I was knock-kneed broom instead. At night alone I marry the bed. She took you the way a woman takes a bargain dress off the rack, and I broke the way a stone breaks. 
I give you back your books and fishing tack. Today's paper says that you are wed. At night, alone, I marry the bed. The boys and girls are one tonight. They unbutton blouses, they unzip flies, they take off their shoes and turn off the lights. The glimmering creatures are full of lies. They are eating each other, and they are overfed. At night alone, I marry the bed. Ballad of the Lonely Masturbator by Anne Sexton That was adorable. I thought it was going to be empowering, but it was a female narrator, so of course it turns out to be a lament. Ah, ha, ha, which is empowering. Oh, female media. It's very strange. This is our last poem. If you want me to go ahead and do a quick quote for you, get ready. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. My pensive Sarah. Thy soft cheek reclined thus on mine arm, most soothing sweet it is to sit beside our cot, our cot overgrown with white-flowered jasmine and that broad-leaved myrtle, meet emblems of thy innocence, thy love. And watch the clouds that late were rich with light, slow saddening round and mark the star of eve, serenely brilliant, such wisdom would be. Shine opposite, how exquisite the sense snatched from your bean-field, the world so hushed. The stilty murmur of the distant sea tells us of silence. And that, simplest lute, placed lengthwise in the clasping casement, hawk. How, by the desolatory breeze caressed, like some coy maid half-yielding to her love, it pours such sweet unbraiding as must needs tempt to repeat the wrong. And now the strings, boldier swept, and long sequacious notes over delicious surges sink and rise, such a soft-floating witchery of sound as twilight elfins make when they... At eve, voyage on gentle gales from fairyland, where melodies round honey dropped flowers, footless and wild, like birds of paradise, nor paws, nor peach, hovering on untamed wing. Oh, the one life within us abroad, which meets all motion and becomes its soul, a light in sound, a sound like power and light, rhythm in all thought and joyance everywhere, methinks it should have been impossible. Not to love all things in a world so filled, but with the breeze warbles, the mute stills air, its music slumbering on her instrument. And thus, my love, as on the midway slope of yonder hill, I stretch my limbs at noon, whilst through my half-closed eyelids I behold the sunbeams dance like diamonds on the main, and tranquil muse upon tranquility, full many a thought uncalled for, undetained, and many idle-fitting fantasies traverse my indolent and passive brain, 
and wild and various as the random gales, and sweet and flutter on the subject lute, at what, if all, of animated nature, but must organic hops diversify framed, that tremble into thought, and over them sweeps plastic and vast, one intellectual breeze, and once the soul of each, God of all. But thy more serious eye, a mild reproof darts, O beloved woman. Nor such thoughts dim and unhallowed dost thou not reject, and biddest me to walk humbly with my God, meek daughter in the family of Christ. Well, hast thou said that holy, dispraised? These shapings of the unregenerative mind, bubbles that glitter as they rise and break on vain philosophy's eye-babbling spring. For never guiltless may I speak of him, the incomprehensible, save with awe I praise him, and with faith in the inly fields, and with his saving mercies healed me, a sinful and most miserable man, wildered and dark, and dark, and gave to possess me peace in this cot, and thee, high heart honored maid. <sighs> Slipped up towards the end there. I don't quite know how to pronounce this word. I'm going to go with the Eolian Harp, E O L I A N Harp, by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And I reject his love of God. I'm just gonna say, good for good for Sarah and all that shit. But like you know, God never healed me. Are there any quick quotes? Quick quotes. All right. got some really interesting love letters tonight. Really interesting love letters tonight. Come to daddy, little girl. We're going to play a game. And you're going to be a good girl for your daddy. Is that clear? You're doing a great job sticking to your goals. Keep up the good work. Because I'm proud of you, baby girl. You've been such a good girl. Come here, sweetie, so Daddy can reward you. Deep breath. You're doing well. Baby girl, keep drinking hot lemon water first thing in the morning. It does your body good. It's okay. Anything else? I guess it's kind of a low-key show. So thank everybody who came out and requested something. It means a lot. <clears throat> it really does. 
And for everybody else who wants to skip this next part, fucking skip it. more we're going to turn up the power i was that was going for distance and uh i was going for distance and uh kind of consistency and go for high power blast here we go Kind of like a Forza Motorsport at this point, and now just just for the fun of it, like I'm an actual motorcycle and I'm a kid doing it. Here we go. Ready? Except I'm over your pussy and your legs are spread open and you're pretending that you don't like it. Here we go. Okay. There you go. If I had a race car bed... That's what I would have done. Listen, I don't... I don't know why some women like that and some women don't. Life sucks. So for the woman who likes it, there you go. <laughs> there you are. For the women who enjoy it. I'm going to make a little confession. Last time I did a live show and the cat came in, it surprised the shit out of me because I locked the cat up in another room, but the cat got out. So I've locked the cat up in the same room this time, but I increased the level of security. And this whole time I kept the door open because I was like, I don't know if the infiltrator is going to get in and I want to see them coming in if they are. So this whole time I've just kind of been like looking over my shoulder, but I think... I think I'm safe. <laughs> Fucking tip me. Life's miserable. And I know I just talked about the end of the country. <laughs> but not really. Because all I'm talking about is that at the end of a constitution, that's all. Try and change your minds to the idea that maybe some people in the end of the 1700s didn't have it all figured out. Okay, so I, I I would normally just read, but I do feel like, because I got a little bit of extra warning on this one, that's necessary, that I should give it as well. This is kind of a love letter, but it's kind of a strange one. It's an ancient smackdown letter. It's like an ancient, like, call-out, or like, cancel culture letter. So, here we go. <clears throat> And you too, I'm going to go with Kuniglas, 
you are fallen into the filth of your former naughtiness. Yes, since you are the first spring of your tender youth, you bear your rider and ruler of many, and guider of the chariot, which is the receptacle of the bear, your contaminer of God, and vilifier of his order. You tawny butcher, as in the Latin tongue your name signifies, why do you raise so great a war as well against men as also against God himself? Against men, yes, your own countrymen with your deadly weapons, and against God with your infinite offenses? Why, besides your other innumerable backslidings, having thrown out the doors of your wife, do you, in the lust or rather stupidity of your mind, against the apostles' express prohibition, denouncing that no adulterers can partake in the kingdom of heaven, esteem her detestable sister, your wife who had vowed unto God the everlasting contingency as this very flower, in the language of the poet, of the celestial nymphs? Why do you provoke with your frequent injuries the lamentations and sighs of saints? by your means corporally afflicted, which would in time to come, like a fierce lioness, break your bones into pieces. Desist, I implore you, as the prophet says, from wrath, and leave off your deadly fury, which you breathe out against heaven and earth, against God and his flock, which should in time well be your own torment. Rather, with altered mind, obtain the prayers of those who possess a power of binding over this world, when in this world they bind the guilty, and of losing when they lose the penitent. Do not be, as the apostle says, proudly wise, nor place your hopes in the uncertainty of riches, but in God, who gives you many things abundantly, and in the amendment of your manners, purchase unto yourself a good foundation for hereafter and seek to enter into the real and true state of existence, which will not be transitory, but everlasting. Otherwise, you shall see, yes, in this very world, how bad and bitter a thing it is for you to leave your Lord God, and to not have his fear before your eyes and in the next, how you shall be burnt in the foul-encompassing flames of endless fire, nor yet in any manner of means will you ever die. For the souls of the sinful are as eternal and perpetual fire, as the souls just in perpetual joy and gladness. Gildius, writing of Cuniglass. Boy, Christians really only have that one fucking move. Fifteen hundred years and they basically got that one fucking move. And that's it. I remember back when I... I'm going to talk about Richard Dawkins real quick. Back when I liked Richard Dawkins. I liked him a lot before this thing called Elevator Gate. Uh, and I would watch him a lot. And uh, I remember there was a period there. Like 2004, 2005, he would give speeches and then take questions. And at the end of every speech... Always, always a hyper-attractive little blonde gal, like 16 through 20 or so, 
would would come up and be all like, "What if you're wrong and going to hell? Thank you." And like, eventually he got sick of it, and he gave like he started to give like like real like, "Hey, no, don't, hey, we're stuck." It's like he's British, so he didn't do it this way. But he'd be like, "Hey, you, hey, 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 make eye contact with me, goddamn you, come on." Come on, you asked a question. Let me give you my answer if hell's real. Let's talk about hell. And like you, you know, so they stopped doing it. Like he started making, you know, you could only you could only do one move to steal a show so many times before the other actors on stage get wise to it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, all right, it's that part of the show. Here we go. Uh, it's just that's immediately immediately what called to mind is like these these cute little blonde girls very attractive blonde girls all dressed up in their church whites going forward and being all like hi yeah i know i i know elevator gate happened i guess i should just say what it is super quick uh there was an atheist convention and there was a blogger that i followed her name was the skep chick get it skep chick and uh, she talked about going to one of these conventions, and her story is actually very mild in case you're worried that there's a trigger. There's not. She goes to a convention. She's uh, she's done with the day. She's going to go up to her hotel room. She goes to the main elevator shaft. There's a guy waiting by there. He's a very friendly guy. He's not taking the hint. Uh, he gets in the elevator with her. He makes her feel really uncomfortable. He rides all the way up. Uh, he gets to the floor with her. She says, I can take it from here. He doesn't really take the hand. She goes, I can take it from here. She gets to her room. This is how I recall it. This is a long time ago. He's very aggressive, and he's very uh, not taking the hint, but that's about it. I don't remember him getting handsy. I don't remember him insisting on coming in. Just way too much. Just, you know, enough to make somebody feel really uncomfortable. And she had a blog, so she wrote about it. And Richard Dawkins' response to this was, are you really going to tell? Like a woman, that that's too much. Imagine a woman in in, in a uh, Arab country, uh, complaining about this level of attention. Which is already a stupid argument, but Richard Dawkins is going around America saying atheists have it bad in America for money at this point, and there's just no way I can ride with somebody that illogical, right? There's just no like that. As soon as I read that, I was like, I'm done with you because you're literally making money off talking about how atheists have it worse which we do in america but use that argument motherfucker just use it just think about it for two seconds but he won't because he's richard fucking dawkins i think even his daughter hates him now and that's really something because he wrote like three different books to her quote unquote wrote three different books to his daughter can you imagine that three different books like most you know can't get any attention from our dads you write three books and you're still like come on dad shut the fuck up no one cares anymore jesus christ go back to talking about butterflies dumbass nobody liked you better than when you were talking about goats you ever seen you ever seen climbing mountain probable it's his best fucking special go back to talking about goats the goats were compelling richie Nobody here knows what Climbing Mountain Probable is, but if you did, you would love those fucking goats. (sighs) Those goats taught me about evolution. Oh my god. Alright. These are definitely weird love letters, then. Uh, I guess these are just letters. 
I am writing you with much concern after having read your hearings to decide whether the alternate theory of intelligent design should be taught along with the theory of evolution. I think that we can all agree that it is important for students to hear multiple viewpoints so that they can choose for themselves the theory that makes the most sense to them. I am concerned, however, that students will only hear one theory of intelligent design. Let us remember that there are multiple theories of intelligent design. I and many others around the world are of the strong belief that the universe was created by a flying spaghetti monster. Speaking of Richard Dawkins. <laughs> if he, who created all that we see and all that we feel, we feel strongly that the overwhelming scientific evidence pointing towards evolutionary processes is nothing but a coincidence put in place by him. It is for this reason that I'm writing you today to formally request that this alternate theory be taught in your skills along with the other two theories. In fact, I will go so far as to say that if you do not agree to do this, we'll be forced to proceed with legal action. I'm sure you can see where we are coming from. If the intelligent design theory is not based on faith, but instead another scientific theory, as is claimed, then you must also allow our theory to be taught. It is also based on science, not faith. Some find it hard to believe so it may be helpful to tell you a little bit more about our beliefs. We have evidence that a flying spaghetti monster created the universe. None of us, of course, were around to see it, but we have written accounts of it. We have several lengthy volumes explaining in detail all of his power. Also, you may be surprised to hear that there are over 10 million of us and growing. We tend to be very secretive, as many people claim our beliefs are not substantiated by observable evidence. What these people don't understand is that he built the world to make us think that the Earth is older than it really is. For example, a scientist may perform common dating on process on some artifact. He finds that approximately 75% of the carbon-14 is decayed, that the electron emission of nitrogen-14, that infers that this artifact is approximately 10,000 years old, and that the half-life of the carbon-14 appears to be 5,730 years. But... What our scientist does not realize is that every time he makes a measurement, the flying spaghetti monster is there changing the result with his noodly appendage. And we have numerous texts that describe in detail how this could be possible and the reasons why he does this. He is, of course, invisible and can pass through normal matter with ease. I'm sure you now realize how important it is that your students have taught this alternate theory. It is absolutely imperative that they realize that the observable evidence is at the discretion of a flying spaghetti monster. Furthermore, it is disrespectful to teach our beliefs without wearing his chosen outfit, which of course is full pirate regalia. I cannot stress the importance of that enough, and unfortunately can't describe the detail in which it must be done, for I fear this letter is already becoming too long. The concise explanation is that he becomes angry if we don't. You may be interested to know that the global warming, earthquakes, hurricanes, and other natural disasters are a direct effect of the shrinking number of pirates since the 1800s. For your interest, I have included a graph for the approximate number of pirates versus the average global temperature over the last 200 years. As you can see, there is a statistically significant inverse relationship between pirates and global temperature. In conclusion, thank you for taking the time to hear our views and beliefs. I hope we'll be able to convey the importance of teaching this theory to your students. We will, of course, be able to train the teachers in this alternate theory. I am eagerly awaiting your response, and I hope dearly that no legal action will need to be taken. I think we can all look forward to the time when these things and these theories are given equal time in our scientific classroom across the country, and eventually the world. 
One third time for intelligent design, one third time for flying spaghetti monsterism, pastafarianism, and one third time for logical conjecture based on overwhelming observable scientific evidence. Yours sincerely, Bobby Henderson. Oh, I can't find the original fucking pirate versus global warming chart back from 2004. It was hilarious. All these charts look too good. All these charts look... All right, so this is this is coming from the mid-2000s, so there's not always going to be politically correct humor in here. But, uh... Oh, God, the original chart for... The original chart for pirates versus global warming. God damn it, I wish I could find it. The first time I saw it, I just about fell over laughing. Because <laughs> it's such a shitty chart. <laughs> it's just such a shitty fucking chart. <laughs> God damn it! Alright, I gotta stop looking. It was just, it was just clearly... No, that's good, but that's a real chart. The original chart was clearly just drunkenly scrawled on a napkin, but like... <laughs> like a wet fucking napkin! I don't know, as soon as you looked at it, you're just all like, this is hilarious. That This is this is exactly what the original Bible books looked like. 1,000%. There's a comedian, I guess he's still around, his name is Dwayne Dane. Dwayne Wayne. And he just, he has this fucking routine that I will always remember. He's one of the first fucking, like, non-believer comics I ever heard. And he had this bit, he goes, There are two things in the Bible. I have read the entire Bible multiple times, and there are two things in it. One, there is a lot of shit that's hard to believe. And two, there is a lot of wine. <laughs> I saw the monster on the road. It had two, four heads. And it... <laughs> yeah, none of the modern, modern Christians talk about all the fucking monsters. Like, you can get their dander up by talking about there's unicorns in the Bible, but like, you start talking, like, they'll be like, you don't know what a Leviathan is. You don't know what a Leviathan is. It could have been a blue whale. You don't know what a Leviathan... Like, they'll do that. But, like, some of the monsters are, like, really well described. There's a monster on the road to Galilee. That motherfucker's, like, in detail with his heads and, like, what his powers are. You know, like... Yeah, wrong kind of piracy, Ali. I'm sorry. You just showed global... You just... You just made an actual argument for why piracy is good for global warming. <laughs> because... Oh, okay, sorry. Damn it, I thought you didn't catch it, and it's just even funnier. Because that's an actual argument for why piracy helps global warming. You don't have to get in your fucking car to pirate something off the internet. Can that be the show? <laughs> Can I end with a fade-out about Dwayne Wayne? My stomach is suddenly hungry. All right. <clears throat> Dear Pat... So sorry not to have written you before. I plead insane in blue bottle voice. Exit right, mid-deafening applause. What the fuck? 
It's all going to make so much more sense when you hear who this letter is from. I do hope you're very well. We have survived yet another glorious English winter. I wonder which day summer falls on this year. Oh, but my dear, I have been so busy since Christmas, besides working at school. You know, I was keen on Chuck Berry, and I thought I was the only fan for miles, but one morning on Dartford Station, that's so I don't have to write a long word like station, I was holding one of Chuck's records when a guy I knew at primary school 70 years, 7 to 11 years ago, you know, he came up to me. He's got every record Chuck Berry's ever made, and all his mates have too, and they all rhythm and blues fans. Real R&B, I mean. Not this Dina Shore, Brooke Benton crap. Jimmy Reed, Muddy Waters, Chuck, Helen Wolf, John Lee Hooker. I actually like Helen Wolf. John Lee Hooker, all the Chicago bluesmen, real low stuff, marvelous. Bo Diddley, he's another great. Anyway, the guy's on the station. He's called Mick Jagger, and all the chicks and boys meet every Sunday morning in the carousel like juke joints. And, well, one morning, Jan and I are walking past and decide to look him up. Everyone's all over me. I get invited to about ten parties. Besides that, Mick is the greatest R&B singer this side of the Atlantic, and I don't mean maybe. I play guitar, Chuck style, and he got us a bass player and a drummer and a rhythm guitar, and we practice two or three nights a week. We're swinging. Of course, they're all rolling in money in massive detached houses. Crazy. One's even got a butler. I went round there with Mick in the car, of course. Mick's not mine. And oh boy, the English is impossible. I really felt like a lord, asking for my coronet when I left. Everything here is just fine. I can't lay off the Chuck Berry, though. I recently got an LP straight from the Chess Records Chicago. Cost me less than an English record. Of course, we've still got the old lags here, you know, Cliff's Records, Adam's Faith, the two new shockers, Shane Fenton, Jor Linton, such crap you've never heard, except for the Greaseball Sinatra. Ha 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 Still don't get bored anymore. This Saturday, I'm going to an all-night party. Twelve galls of beer barrel of cider, three bottles of whiskey wine, and my mom and pa's gone away for the weekend. I'll twist myself till I drop, I'm glad to say. This Saturday after Mick and I are taking two girls over to our favorite rhythm and blues club in Ealing, Middlesex. Middlesex. <laughs> they got a guy in electric harmonica. Fabulous. Well then, I can't think of anything else to bore you with, so I'm going to sign off. Good night, viewers. Big grin with love. Keith. So he always knew he was going to be Keith Richards? Keith Richards to his aunt's patty. He always knew he was going to be Keith Richards, huh? That's kind of crazy. That's weird. That's very strange. It's like a love letter to himself. That much confidence at that age. That's kind of crazy. <clears throat> I think I've read this one before, but let's read it again. Since I really like this man. I adore you, sweetheart. I know how much you like to hear that, but I don't only write it because you like it. I write it because it makes me warm all over inside to write it to you. It is such a terribly long time since I last wrote you, almost two years, but I know you'll excuse me because I understand how I am, stubborn and realistic, and I thought there was no sense to writing, but now I know, my darling wife, that there is right to do what I have delayed in doing that I have done so much in the past, I want to tell you that I love you. 
will always love you. I find it hard to understand in my mind what it means to love you after you are dead, but I still want to comfort and take care of you. I want to love me and care for you. I want to have problems to discuss with you. I want to do little projects with you. I never thought until just now that we can't do that. What should we do? We started to learn to make clothes together, or learn Chinese, or getting a movie projector. Can't I do something now? No. I am alone without you, and you were the idea woman and the general instigator of all our wild adventures. When you were sick, you worried because you could not give me something that you wanted to and thought I needed. You nent have worried. Just as I told you then that there was no real need because I loved you in so many ways, and now it is clear even more true, you can give me nothing now yet. I love you so that you stand in the way of loving anyone else. But I want you to stand there. You, dead, are so much better than anyone else alive. I know you will assure me that I am foolish, and that you want me to have full happiness, and you don't want to be in my way. I'll bet you are surprised that I don't even have a girlfriend, except for you, after two years. But you can't help it, darling, nor can I. I don't understand it, for I have met many girls, and very nice ones, and I don't want to remain alone, but in two or three meetings they all seem ashes. You are only left to me. You are real. My darling wife, I do adore you. I love my wife. My wife is dead. Rich. P.S. Please excuse my not mailing this, but I don't know your new address. Richard Finman to his wife, late wife Arlene Finman, ah, who had passed away two years before. Richard Fenman is often thought of as a kind of Einstein figure, as a kind of genius, and came up with a principle that I still think is the most intelligent thing I've ever heard about knowing something or thinking you know something. It's the Fenman principle. And that is, can you explain it to a five-year-old? Because if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, then you don't really understand it. You just know it. Until you can break it down to its components, that you can explain it to any child, you don't really get it, you just get parts of it. Otherwise, their endless whys and hows and huhs would just be another challenge. Yeah, you know tying your shoes, so you know how to get the shoe to kid the tied shoes. You know how an airplane works, or you think you do, until they start asking you about lift and thrust. <laughs> and you realize you only have a little bit of an answer to give them about what's going on there. And then you have to say, well, let's find a fucking pilot. <laughs> all right, guys. I think that's going to have to be it for me. I know that we've got some smut, and I know that I allured you all with that uh, warning thing, but that's just going to have to wait until next week. Thank you all very much for coming out. Appreciate everyone who came out since I didn't advertise the show at all because I was feeling kind of low, and I just I didn't really... I don't, I don't really know how what I said is going to come across. 
but I kind of felt like I needed to say it. So thank you very much for that. Thank you, everybody who requested, everybody who tipped to keep the show on and going, and we appreciate you very, very much. Thank you to Serena and Aria for taking those DMs all day. Ali for making the show uh, as seamless as she can. Uh, we appreciate you all very, very much. Every girl who's come out to the server and watched a movie during October know that I appreciate you. I'll be streaming some stuff as well. Come on out. You can find out more at Real Grey Knight. R-E-A-L-K-G-R-E-Y-K-N-I-G-H-T. On Twitter, the pin tweet will bring you on into the Discord. You can get more information, including the schedule there. Showing lots of fun movies like Beetlejuice and Interview with the Vampire and all kinds of favorites. I'll be hosting Lovecraft Country pretty quick here. Pretty excited to see that. Okay, guys, that's going to do it. Hopefully see you here next week, 16th, Friday, the... Yeah, Friday the 16th, October, uh, 10 Eastern. Hope to see you there. Uh, by the time you hear this, there should definitely be a podcast up, but if not, don't worry too much. I'm just a little bit behind because of my emotional state. But I have it all written. I just... just trouble getting it out, performing it, but uh, we'll get over the hump. Thank you all very, 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 very much. And by the way, if you listened to all this and you thought, boy, he sounds really confident, he sounds really hot, his body sounds amazing, you're absolutely correct. Um, I may be, like, super depressed and, like, winging it, but uh, I've been taking care of myself. Like, I kind of... I don't, I don't, can you, I don't know if you're going to be able to tell the difference on this as I try and like play us out a little bit, but like, I'm starting to get so proud of just this racquetball court square that I call a chest. So just real quick here. And like, you know, I can talk during this, like I can hit it, it has no effect. Does that turn you on at all? Because I will... This kind of turns me on. I feel this part of my body now, and I'll just be all like, that's pretty interesting. Like, not a lot of dudes can, like, tap their chest and talk. Like, you can hear them pulling back a little bit, but not much. Oh, feels good. And, like, I'll rub myself, and I'll rub my own little, you know, man tits, my own chest when I'm watching a movie or something lately. Does that do it for you? Because, like, baby, I believe in a future... And I believe in an America. I just think it needs to change up a little bit before I come out of hibernation and give you all I got. So let's get rid of our COVIDs. Let's change some rights around and let's get this party started. Don't you want to live in the 70s? Like the good part? <laughs> the better parts of the 70s? We can get there. I believe in us. We can do it. <laughs> the better parts of the 70s, the freedom and the sex and the drugs and the economic mobility, the civil rights, that portion of the 70s, you know? We can get there. I believe in us. All right, guys. Thank you very, very much. That's the end of the show. See you here next week. Bye.